Welcome to Bonnie's Hydration Corner here on Eagle County Public Access Television. I'm Bonnie, and today we're going to be talking about the benefits of drinking lots of water. And our guest is Adam Sahota, author of A Hunter of Doves. Adam, tell us about your book. Well, it's a novel, a fictionalized account of the composer Dmitry Shostakovich in the final days of Stalin. And I drew upon... Uh, and how much water did you drink while you were writing this book? I don't know. That's not something I really keep track of. I guess I didn't understand the focus of your show. Are you crazy? It's the focus of everybody, don't you know? Your heart and your brain are 73% water. How about this guy, Jostapovich? You know, how much water did he drink? Shostakovich. And I don't think we know that. Well, how dark was his urine? I don't, I don't know. A excuse me. My kidneys are having a parade for me right now. Let me ask you this. Would your character be more likely to eat a grape or a raisin? What's the difference? Water. When I eat raisins, I chase them down with 16 ounces of H2O. You know what, Adam? I've had a lot of authors on this show, and every last one of them is just like you. They never think about how much water their characters should drink. Yeah, what a coincidence. You'll never win a Nobel Prize at this rate. Well, that's our show for today. Coming up on Eagle County Public Access, it's Angel Hour with Celeste Longacre. I don't know which angel she's got on today. They all look alike to me. And then after that, Captain Dandelion's Garden Chat. This week, it's all about cutworms. Thanks for watching Bonnie's Hydration Corner. And now his body is medically classified as a Slurpee, Colin McEnroe. Yes, well, we are going to be talking about water today. And in fact, it's this show is being produced by the best hydrated producer in public radio, Betsy Kaplan, who uh, I don't know how much water she drinks all day long, but it's an impressive thing to behold. And we all do behold it. So um, I, I just want to preface this by saying that in, in a way, the idea of drinking water is as old as the human race. In other ways, it's kind of a new idea uh, in the sense that in the 19th century, especially living in cities, people did not drink water. Uh, if they did, they got sick. Uh, the water supplies were almost inevitably terrible. They spread cholera. Um, so in the late 19th century, for example, in London, um, they introduced drinking fountains. The first drinking fountain, I think it was like maybe 1859, something like that. And there was this um, league of philanthropists introducing the idea of the public being able to have access to drinking water. And, and because there wasn't that much of it, uh, because, in fact, it was dirty or it came from pumps that uh, uh, were connected to diseased water sources and stuff. People drank other stuff, and mainly what they drink, I mean, I'm talking about children, adults, and old people, they drink a lot of alcohol. They drink alcohol because it seemed to them to be less likely to make them sick. Uh, and so one of the reasons that water drinking first came into vogue was through the temperance movement. The temperance movement, both in England and America, was really interested in getting people to drink water because of what else they were actually drinking. Um, so in some ways, in that sense, anyway, the notion that we should drink water, that we should have access uh, to a, a lot of clean drinking water is a relatively new one. Obviously, the human race has been drinking water for a really long time. We pretty much have to. That's uh, who we are. So we're going to talk today about ideas of hydration. Uh, as we got interested in this, we discovered that many of the things that we're talking about these days that we take for granted or, or that we think that we understand about how much water you need to drink and when you need to drink it, there isn't quite as much science behind it as you might think, or there isn't 
uniform science behind it or the science doesn't necessarily say the thing that you've been told. So uh, let me tell you a little bit about who's on the show today. I'm making a slight adjustment to the board there. There we go. And uh, so in studio with me is Lawrence Armstrong. He is professor of exercise and environmental physiology and director of human performance lab at the University at UConn. Uh, and Alex Hutchinson is here by phone. He's a science journalist who writes the Fast Lane column and sweat science blog for Runner's World, author of Which Comes First, Cardio or Weights, Fitness Myths, Training Truths, and Other Surprising Discoveries from the Science of Exercise. He's also a marathon runner. Uh, Larry Armstrong told me before we went on the air that he actually worked with Alberto Salazar, who's still sort of my idea of the ultimate marathon runner, but maybe not a person who made marathon running a very safe sport for himself. So uh, anyway, we, um, Larry, Larry, let's just begin with this idea. I pro- probably if anybody has a rule of thumb, if anybody's heard anything, they've heard this eight cup per day rule that, that that's how much water uh, you need to be drinking. Where did that rule come from? It came from just an estimate that physiologists gave us. However, in 2004, 2006, and 2010, there were reports that came from professional and uh, scientific organizations. Um, and, And is it right? Is it correct? It's amazing. When you look at the Institute of Medicine National Academy of Sciences or the report out of Australia from their medical council, Hmm. or the European Food Safety Authority. They all have similar recommendations, and the least of those is for women because, in general, women have a smaller body water and body size, not all, but most. And, indeed, it's about 2.1 to 2.8 liters a day, meaning something just less than that in quarts. I I assume it's also the case that it varies depending on what you're doing. I was just telling you before we went on the air, I was biking in France uh, when it was 100-degree heat most days, and I was cycling, and two liters or or three liters was not going to do it. Very good. Uh, There's a range of sweat loss across sizes and and individuals, and it could range anywhere from a half of a quart or liter uh, per hour up to maybe three or four liters in athletes who uh, have a very high sweat rate. Right. Yeah, in fact, uh, Larry, kindly, before we went on the air, handed me this color chart. It's like a Sherwin-Williams, Benjamin Moore color chart, except it's for your urine, and it goes one through eight. And I know I was a six uh, on a lot of days. <laughs> and I would look at it and go, that's, that's not good. That can't be right. And it was very hard to get, get, the, get the right amount of water. So I mean, to, to that point, um, Alex, uh, welcome to the conversation. Um, one way that athletes and just normal people might approach this is, well, I'll drink when I'm thirsty. My body will tell me that I need more to drink. Uh, That's called being thirsty. It doesn't need to get a whole lot more complicated than that. How right, Alex, are those people? You know, I think there's there's an emerging, uh, not consensus, but an emerging feeling that thirst is actually a pretty good indicator that's evolved over thousands of years. But I think we can we can push that too far in assuming that everyone is is sensitive to their to their feelings of thirst um and there like you said there's certain situations if you're out exercising in the in the heat or uh you know if you're sitting in an office where there's no water cooler nearby where you might not have easy access to 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 water there there are times when you actually have to pay attention to how much water you're getting but i think the trend in recent years has been to acknowledge that actually for the most part if you're paying attention in most circumstances uh, if, if you're sensitive to when you feel a little thirsty and you drink, then you're, you're mostly going to be okay. Although, as you said, there's certainly uh, divergent opinions on that. In fact, there are not only divergent opinions, generally speaking, but I can see uh, Larry over there uh, shaking his head a little bit. He doesn't quite agree with that, right? 
That's correct. There's no evidence that thirst is adequate to maintain hydration, and there's no evidence that it will keep us from over-drinking. And I think we're going to talk about that a little bit later in the show. Yeah, you, but, can, you can drink too much water, and we will talk about that. Yeah. Yes, indeed, we, we will. But thirst is, is vague. When you tell someone to drink to thirst, what does that mean? Mm. Um, well, one thing I also wonder, and I'm going to ask both of you about this, and I, I'm, I'm going to come back to it, I think, also when we have uh, one of our other guests uh, from the Corey Stringer Institute on. But um, one thing, Alex, that, that I feel like I learned, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's true, <laughs> but I, I feel like I learned from several ex- experiences, especially for about five years I was doing hot room yoga, not Bikram yoga, but hot room yoga. And I had one teacher who would get annoyed at everybody drinking water in the class. But what he would say was, you should drink the water before you get here. You you need you need to already have the water in you. Uh, you're not going to be able to catch up. This is the wrong time to be trying to drink the water when you're sweating like a mad person. So I, I don't know. I, first of all, I'll ask both of you about this. But but Alex, that's I actually started doing that and it seemed to to work better, that if I anticipated a situation where I'd be losing a lot of hydration, I kind of prehydrated. Yeah, I think I think that's excellent advice. And I think, uh, you know, what you're saying about uh, varies with the, the color chart for urine. I mean, we should always aspire to be in a, in a good state of hydration. And I think what we've what we've learned in, recently is that the body's pretty good at tolerating temporary uh, dehydration. And if you look at top marathon runners, for instance, they can set the world record while losing 10% of their body weight. And if you look at cross-sectionally at marathon finishers, the most, the fastest runners tend to be the most dehydrated. So this idea that dehydration in the short term is a disaster is maybe a little uh, oversold, but that is predicated on the fact that you're starting with reasonable hydration levels. And I think there's, there's been some interesting research in the last couple of years looking at not what people drink during exercise, but what they drink between bouts of exercise and what they do to make sure they, if they do get dehydrated during exercise, that they, they get back uh, to, to a good starting place. So, yeah, I think that's excellent advice. Uh, it, you, it doesn't mean that drinking during hot yoga is a bad idea. I mean, mm. whenever you drink, it's, it, you start to absorb that water very, very quickly in a matter of minutes. Um, so you, you can drink any time, but, but starting with your, your, you know, at a reasonable level with uh, not to get graphic, but with, you know, reasonably pale and clear urine. Uh, it certainly makes gives you a little more leeway to work with, I think. We talk about uh, urine color on this show all the time. You don't have to apologize for it. Um, <laughs> I've even discussed with Mike Berbiglia the, uh, the game that he used to play where he would try to see how clear he could make his urine uh, and just to, for his own uh, enjoyment or something or because it made him feel a little bit healthier. You know, I want to come back to the um, marathon stuff in, in our second segment when we've got uh, Rebecca here with us too. Um, but so, and I know Larry has some thoughts about this. And uh, um, so I'm just going to freeze that for a second. And Larry, instead, I'm, what I'm going to ask you is, I guess we're sort of getting ahead of the story in a way. We haven't said why the body needs any particular amount of water. I mean, we know that parts of the body, well, I think you heard in the introduction that the brain and the heart are both about 73% uh, water. I guess the body's about, overall, maybe it's about 60% water, something like that. But why do we need water? Why, I mean, or why do we need hydration? Well, our body is 55 to 65% body mass, but then that depends on how much adipose tissue or body fat you have. Uh, but it's important because it supports cardiovascular function. Of course, blood is 50% water. It helps us regulate our body temperature when we sweat. It transports nutrients and waste products into and out of cells. And it's where our metabolism occurs. There's a watery matrix inside of cells where all of our metabolic processes occur. So there's no question that water is essential for life. 
Um, and and well, I guess also, I think in the um, second segment when Rebecca and Alex are both here with you, we'll talk a little bit more about what happens in sports, which really amounts to temporary dehydration. Like even when I was biking in France l- last summer and, and having a number six on the urine chart, I mean, it was a temporary thing. There's also just a lot of people who walk around chronically dehydrated. So w- explain that. Well, first of all, what happens to those people? What, what are the risks to those people, Larry? It's interesting. I was at a at a conference and actually chaired a session, and Ali Melander from Sweden had pre- presented results that show that people who drink chronically less than one liter a day are at increased risk of cardiovascular disease, of metabolic syndrome, and uh, diabetes, type 2 diabetes. And these are in large-scale epidemiological studies. Now, that means that uh, there's, the, there's that correlation, there's that relationship, but they still need to conduct controlled, randomized trials uh, to verify that. Well, that's the thing. It must be a, a fairly hard thing to study, how much water anybody drinks, and then, right? I mean, that would be a difficult thing to even come up with a good, big study model for. Indeed. Imagine finding a 1,000 or 2,000 people or even 10 people who would control their water intake for 1, 2, 10, 15 years. We re- have to remember that these chronic diseases take years and years to develop. Um, I, w- I want you to both just talk a little bit about the question about, okay, so if, if, if thirst isn't the perfect indicator, although it is an indicator, and then I've got this uh, handy urine uh, co- color chart. Um, Alex, do I have everything that I need to know uh, about, I mean, how would I know I was getting dehydrated? Yeah, that, I mean, that's an interesting question. And, and I think different people are in tune with their bodies in, to different extents. And so if if you, I know, I know we're talking day-to-day life here, but athletes tend to be much more in tune with if they're not feeling uh, up to scratch. And I know I, I actually, you know, I, I was as a, as a runner, I, I, I'm very cognizant of my urine color, which I know is a, so. I, I, I play that game too of making sure my urine is is, is clear. Um, but I also, you know, and it's thirst is such a vague thing, as Larry said, and so it's hard to say. You know, there's no indicator light that comes on and says you must drink now. And so I do think you have to be conscious of that. You have to be aware of the fact that your body needs water and be, you know, seeking out opportunities to drink it um, and, and, and responsive to the, the, you know, the feeling of, oh, would, it, would a drink feel good right now? Yes, then I'd better, better take a drink. Um, and I, I just, I, I feel like, we're making it sound like this really, really tricky thing <laughs> where through most of human history, it hasn't been a huge challenge. Like it, we have sensor, we, we have the ability to drink water when we're thirsty. And that seems to have evolved to allow us to, to get enough in. Mm. Now we're smart. You know, we have a lot more information now so we can try and optimize things. We're not just trying to survive. We're trying to be healthy for the long term, And so, uh, you know, there there may be some guidelines we can we can come up with that that uh, that give more specific indication. But as far as I'm concerned, if you're feeling okay and if you, if your urine is in the clear and if you're conscious that you are drinking periodically, maybe not a specific amount, but if it's not like oh wait it's dinner and I haven't had anything to drink since breakfast, uh, if you're if you're being aware of these things, then I think most people 
uh, are not going to run into problems. So, again, I, I recognize that uh, we don't all agree on that. Well, I mean, Larry, uh, some of these studies even indicate that mild chronic dehydration can affect your mood, can affect uh, your, your cognition. So it, it gets to be one of those questions where, in fact, the thing that is affecting your cognition might be suppressing your ability to understand what's happening. That's good. Uh, Thirst doesn't appear until we are 1% to 2% dehydrated. Mm. Now, that could be anybody during the week, several times, anybody that, even that's sitting at a desk in an air-conditioned environment. So when you're thirsty, you're already 1% to 2% dehydrated. And indeed, uh, we found at UConn in our laboratory that men were affected with a 1.5% dehydration and women were affected with a 1.3% dehydration and cognitive tests on computers and mood changes and task difficulty and headache symptoms were all greater when they were at that dehydrated state as opposed to a perfectly euhydrated state. So, Larry, right before we went on the air today, uh, somebody shared with us on Twitter this uh, stand-up regime by Lewis Black where he's talking about water, which we would have played, A, if we'd had time, and B, we, we, had, we would have had to bleep so much of it, probably it would have become incomprehensible. <laughs> but he, yeah. was, he was making the, the point that when he was growing up and water was free, nobody told him how much water he had to drink. Uh, he was just expected to kind of figure that out. But then when people started selling water for a dollar twenty nine a bottle suddenly uh, there were all these ideas about drinking eight cups of water a day and, and he wondered if there was some kind of well no being Lewis Black he assumed there was some kind of connection but some of these studies that have been done have been funded by the people who make their money from water yes indeed uh, however that assumes that the research team is biased in their interpretation and uh, the people I know that do this work and the kind of work that we've done sponsored by corporations uh, uh, I find that when that research is done, the corporations don't meddle in the data, and they allow us to take our own course and interpret the data as we see them. And we've had some really sophisticated controlled trials that show that this mild dehydration can impact us. But I agree, uh, until the National Academy of Sciences in 2004, until the Australian group, the medical group, uh, 2006, and until the European Food Safety Authority came out in 2010, we didn't have these guidelines. Um, and, and the other thing, Larry, is that uh, we tend to talk about this in terms of water, but the more of the research that I read, the more of your research that, that I read, the more I realized, well, no, it's, it's liquid. You need to drink liquids, right? I mean, they're not all created equal, but a lot of them do accomplish hydration, maybe even coffee, which kind of had a bad reputation. Oh, that's splendid. Uh, we did caffeine studies looking at caffeine in capsules, and caffeine does not dehydrate the body. There's been a study from the United Kingdom that was just published last year that showed that coffee intake, not capsulated caffeine, but mm. coffee intake does not dehydrate the body. Then just two months ago, a paper appeared in the British Journal of Nutrition done by Ron Maughan and his colleagues in the UK. And this paper looked at what he called a beverage hydration index. So they compared pure water intake to a number of beverages, including those that have sodium and potassium, orange juice, milk, and even alcohol. They looked at a, a pint, actually a quart of beer. And they found that, yes, those fluids that had sodium or potassium in them were, in terms of rehydrating over four hours, slightly better. But you know, the differences across all those beverages were 10% difference. It's not saying that all those beverages don't allow us to retain the fluid. Even with coffee or alcohol, we still retain 80 or 90% of the fluid that we consume. But we know with, with alcohol, it is going to dehydrate us, right? Well, you know, one beer, no. Okay. Uh, one drink, a mixed drink, not necessarily. That's how it all starts, though. Uh, yes, it does. Uh, alcohol abuse, I would agree. 
All right. So, oh, uh, I could just yeah, go ahead, Alex. Yeah. Thought about the, uh, Love to hear your thoughts. Th- this idea that, that we're all walking around slightly dehydrated without realizing it and our brains are befuddled. I mean, I think this, this idea points to a lot of the challenges with, with studying these things well. And the subtle things that, you know, when, the, when there's industry-funded research, it doesn't mean that the, in, the research is corrupt. It just affects the way the questions are asked. So, for instance, these studies showing that, that mild dehydration leads to cognitive impairment, these are done by, in some cases, giving the subject a diuretic and then having them head into a treadmill and, you know, walk on a treadmill in a hot room uh, without rehydrating. So these are not the, this is not the standard case of someone who just doesn't realize they're getting dehydrated. They're being given something that makes them urinate, they're not, and they're walking on a hot treadmill and, and not drinking, and then their cognitive performance is being assessed. I just don't think that, you know, that's a realistic assessment of, of what we're talking about here. It's like, yeah, if you're taking a dehydrated, you know, diuretic and walking in a heat chamber, you need to pay attention to your hydration. But that, that's not, that's not a, uh, an objective measure of, of, of day-to-day life. And similarly, when we look at some of these other studies that, that try and correlate uh, chronic water consumption to, uh, to, to things like mood, I agree that it's a super challenging thing to, to study. But so as a result, if you look at some of those studies, the, the people who were drinking the most water were also taking in the most caffeine. They were also getting the most exercise. They were also consuming the most carbohydrates. So you can try and control for those things statistically, but fundamentally you're comparing different populations of people. And so to point the finger that it's just the water that's doing that is, is very challenging. And, you know, I don't, I don't mean to underestimate the challenges of doing that research. I just I don't think we should uh, conclude that we've, we've necessarily demonstrated what we think we have. Yeah, go ahead, Larry, and then we're going to go to a break after this. I'd like to respectfully disagree about all those studies. Some of them, yes, involved heat, and some of them involved exercise in the heat. But there have been studies published from a controlled hospital setting where people just were very quiet during the day. And there have been studies that have looked at um, uh, people just sitting in a laboratory without exercise and without heat. So uh, I can provide those studies. All right. We're going to take a quick break here. By the way, if you've got questions about this, uh, if you're trying to figure out how much water you need to drink or whether you're overhydrated or underhydrated, uh, we certainly have the experts here for you. 860-275-7266. That's 860-275-7266. And you can also tweet at us, at WNPR Colin. And WNPR Colin, alias Greg Hill, will tweet back at you. All right, we're talking about hydration. Hey, I just quickly want to, while I'm thinking of it also, this does not have to do with hydration, but tomorrow on the nose, our culture panel, we are going to be talking about um, a show called Lady Dynamite. Uh, Lady Dynamite is on Netflix. It's Maria Bamford's a new comedy. And if you're like kind of person, when you listen to the nose, you'd like to have opinions, you know, and shout at the radio or pretend you're a fourth nose panelist or something, you might want to tonight just uh, chew up a couple episodes of Lady Dynamite if you have Netflix. Uh, and so I'm just, you know, forewarned is forearmed. Uh, that's all I'm telling you. All right, we're going to uh, go back to talking about hydration, water, how much water you need, uh, when you need it, and under what circumstances. We're adding to this conversation uh, Rebecca Stearns. She's chief operating officer at the Corey Stringer Institute at the University of Connecticut. Uh, she, like Alex, uh, is a marathon runner, Alex Hutchinson, uh, who's a science journalist who writes the Fast Lane column 
and Sweat Science blog for Runner's World. Uh, also with us here in studio is Lawrence Armstrong, professor of exercise and environmental physiology and director of human performance lab at UConn. All of them uh, have a lot of experience with uh, marathon runners, uh, and uh, we'll be talking about that in just a second. Uh, but most of you aren't marathon runners. On the other hand, you uh, you do compete in sports. You have kids who compete in sports. Um, Rebecca Stearns, obviously that's uh, the purpose of the Corey Stringer Institute is to sort of keep uh, in mind uh, the phenomenon of athletes, especially kids, uh, who are competing in sports. I, I was telling uh, Larry before we went on the air, you know, I went to a school for six years where we had sports, we had competitive sports, we had practices. I think there were like never, there was never, I didn't play football, but uh, I played soccer, I was a cross-country runner, I played baseball, uh, and I don't ever remember ever there being water at a practice. Uh, this was in the 60s and 70s. I just don't think anybody ever even thought about something like this. One of the things that your institute ha- has learned and is trying to promote is that's just absolutely essential. Talk about why it's important. I mean, it should be obvious, but to whatever extent it's not obvious, Explain why it's important to understand the science of hydration. Right, yeah, um, and you bring up a great point. So um, especially in our youth athletes and those that are out participating um, in the summer, um, they are probably some of our most at-risk individuals because they're exercising intensely in the heat and they're young. They may not be in shape for the exercise session that they're coming into. So these are all important reasons why hydration would be important for many reasons that you've already covered Um, Hydration can play an important factor in sports participation, not only for performance reasons, but also for their health and safety. So, for example, we know that for every 1% um, body mass loss, there's almost a half a degree increase in an athlete's body temperature. So those can quickly add up and um, put somebody more at risk for um, things like an exertional heat illness. All right. So think about that, what she just said for a second. For every uh, 1% of body weight loss, which is you know, usually going to be mostly water weight loss, I, I assume, body temp goes up, up by one half a degree. Um, now, uh, Larry, uh, you did work with Alberto Salazar. This is a guy who uh, often would win a marathon race and then get into an ambulance, uh, which I always found a little bit alarming. Um, and so uh, what did you discover was going on in, in that sense in his body while he was doing that? This was prior to the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles. And Alberto had been training with Marty LaCourie in Florida. And when he went to L.A., uh, we had measured his sweat rate just before he left. And we were planning his water intake during that marathon in Los Angeles. And we measured Alberto in a laboratory at 3.7 liter sweat rate per hour. Now, that's about three and a half quarts. Uh, the average person, Colin, like you and me, might have a, a 0.8 to about a 1.5 liter per hour sweat rate. So he was clearly one of the highest in the world, and it's still nearly a record. And, and I, but I also assume that in that situation, he's losing a lot of that weight, and the the hyperthermia risk is getting very high. Indeed, uh, you probably know that he uh, had two very serious heat strokes and nearly died. Um, so, Alex, uh, obviously there's um, uh, a lot of people reading Runner's World, and they're either training for marathons or half marathons, or they just like to run. Um, and, and so w- what's what's the overall advice about this? I mean, I guess marathon runners these days, even ones who are relatively new to the sport, have gotten pretty sophisticated uh, about hydrating. Or, or have they? Yeah, yes and no. I mean, we're all much more aware of hydration. It's still really tricky to figure out how much you need during a race. And, and, you know, the, the advice that's been given for quite a while is is to, to do a sort of simulation in the conditions you're going to race in, weigh yourself before and after, say, an hour of running in those conditions and figure out 
what your sweat weight rate is, figure out if you're a one liter an hour guy or a three liter an hour guy, because that's going to determine how much you run. Because running is an unusual situation because it's not very comfortable to drink. It's not easy to drink when you're running and it's not very comfortable for your stomach. So that's, that's a classic example of a situation where you're going to want to drink in most cases more than you would choose to if you were just drinking based on comfort because it's not comfortable to drink when you're, when you're running. I mean, that, that said, you're never going to replace every, or you, you can replace everything you sweat out, but that's not necessarily the optimal. And, and there's some speculation that guys like Alberto Salazar and Haley Gabriel is another guy who's, whose sweat rate has been measured at above three liters an hour, and he's the former world record holder in the marathon, that being able to lose 10% of your body weight and still run is that might actually be a competitive advantage for, for, for some of these really great marathon runners that they, they, they're light by the end of a race. Um, but not, not all of us can do that. And that's, I don't think anyone should aspire to lose 10% or even 8% or 6% of their body weight. But you have, the, the, the challenge is we all want to give you know, useful rule of thumb advice saying this is how much you should drink you know, when you're running in a marathon. The, the, the truth is it depends on the person and depends on the exertion, the level of effort you're going for, and it depends on the conditions. Um, but, but one way, you know, getting a sense of how much you sweat is certainly uh, a, a, a good start at figuring out what, how, how hard you need to push your drinking at those water stations. And, and, you know, the good thing is these days there's water stations very frequently, so um, you're less likely to be out there for 20 kilometers without, without a chance to drink. Um, I want to go to Becca in just a second, but I can tell from Larry's body language he has something to say about this, too. Yes, I agree that marathon runners might drink only 100 to 400 ml per race. That's less than a half a quart. But these are the elite runners of the world, and I ask, if they did not lose 10 pounds, how fast would they run? Realistically, they can't drink, but they should be. I don't think we want to give that advice, that advice about these elite, elite athletes to everyone on the course. Yeah, no, and, and Alex did say that. So, Becca, a couple of things here. First of all, one thing that I, I don't know if we're making this clear, but um, uh, you, know, you might think, well, the, the more fit you are, the less your body would respond to the stress uh, of of sports by sweating. But it's the other way around. I mean, that's why we're talking about Salazar's or somebody else's sweat right, weight, right? The more uh, in shape you are, the more you're going to sweat? Yeah, so um, optimizing your um, sweat or your balance of fluid intake is going to heavily depend on your sweat rate and knowing that sweat rate. And that's exactly one of the things that's going to influence it is your overall fitness. And we know that as you become more fit, um, your sweat rate will increase, and there's other major factors that also go into that, such as um, the weather. Obviously, hotter weather, you're going to have a higher sweat rate. Um, if you're wearing extra protective equipment, that's going to increase your sweat rate, as well as being what we call acclimatized or um, having these beneficial adaptations that your body does to become tolerant of the heat and actually improve its response to the heat, which, again, now, one of those is going to be to increase your sweat rate. So all of these factors will combine um, and actually increase your sweat rate, which will help with your heat dissipation. But in turn, it also increases your water needs. Um, and, and Becca, the, the another thing is this is another one of those areas where men and women are not exactly the same. Correct. Yeah, we've, we've documented that overall um, men actually do have a higher sweat rate than women. And um, that's after you account for many other factors that could go into that. So um, we have found that there are regional differences between men and women, but overall um, men do have higher um, water needs than, than women do. 
and that they lose more. So, uh, and Becca, let's also quickly talk about it, and maybe all the guests will have something that they want to say about this, but um, one of the things that we've discovered, uh, or that you've discovered, people like you have discovered, uh, it's a little bit more rare, uh, but you can drink too much water. You can drink so much water that it becomes dangerous to you. And one of the environments where you might do that, even though, as Alex said, it's kind of uncomfortable to be drinking a lot of water while you're also uh, running, but but at marathons, people do get so obsessed with uh, with high that they put themselves in danger. Explain how that happens. Right. So um, typically when we see an individual who's had too much water consumed, these are going to be individuals who have done their marathon at kind of a lower intensity. They're people who finish in the four-hour-plus range or those who are even in more common situations um, doing an Ironman triathlon, for example, which can take even the elites, eight, nine, ten hours to complete, and the general population are going to be completing it in 12 hours. And that amount of time gives those individuals um, the ability to consume uh, a, a pretty large amount of fluid, and fluid that is going to be mostly water in that it will dilute the blood sodium. So that's essentially the process that's happening when you're drinking too much water, is that you're diluting your blood sodium, and that can cause long um, issues down the line. So... Um, that's when you need to be careful is when you're doing these long duration events and you're not going very intensely and you have open access to water and you're drinking it almost excessively and kind of forcing it to the point where you're uncomfortable. Yeah, it's pretty hard to do. You're not going to do it around the office, but it's something uh, anyway to be aware of. Yeah. You know, you know, Larry, while we're talking about this, okay, so that's a, an, is, an issue of um, a lot of things are happening when you drink too much water, but one of them is dilution, uh, dilution of some of the salt and minerals that, you're, that, that are in your body. A much more common thing uh, is you're running, you're sweating, and you're losing salts, really, not just probably sodium, but losing various kinds of salts. When I, I did a Another bike ride a few years ago it was a tandem ride uh, in Europe, and a lot of the people who ran the tandem bikes were a little up in years the way I am. Uh, and the guy who was running the ride said, "You know, all of you have been told to watch your sodium, right? You're all watching your salt and stuff like that." I got to tell you, it's 98 degrees out there. You're riding a bicycle. At the end of the day, you're not going to have enough salt in your body. Uh, you're going to be going to discover that you're too careful about this. And, and there's some reality to that, right? I mean, this is one of the reasons you get cramps. Indeed. Uh, it appears that not only a high sweat rate about the water and a high sweat sodium concentration are the problems. And when they're combined in the person who is a heavy sweater and a salty sweater, those are the individuals that have the greatest risk. And Colin, it sounds like your jersey was probably white with salt by the end of that event. If not, <laughs> some people are. No, I knew I knew when to stop, actually. I actually stopped a little bit earlier. Got on the boat that was going up and down the Rhine or the Moselle or whatever, and other people spent the night writhing with cramps. Uh, yes. Well, my my bike mate Steve Lashover walked around with salt and magnesium tablets and stuff like this. So, Alex, we should talk about this one thing. Larry's not going to like it, I can already tell. But there is uh, one line of thought, and you've kind of, I think, alluded to it before uh, among marathon runner, runners around around high performance runners that that maybe um, a little bit of dehydration. Uh, during a race may actually be a good thing, that, that losing, say, 3% of your body mass through dehydration uh, when you're in some kind of high-performance sports situation um, might actually be somewhat a- advantageous. Uh, I- explain this idea. Well, there's actually there's a couple of related ideas, and one is that a little bit of dehydration during training is a, is a potent stimulus to make your body adapt and specifically to make your body uh, to 
uh, increase the, pl- the volume of plasma that's pumping through your veins. Um, and you know, fundamentally, when you think about training, it's applying a stress to your body in a manageable way so that your body can adapt. And dehydration is one of the stresses that we often go under with training. And there's been a bunch of research lately, uh, uh, much of it out of New Zealand, but also um, you know, it's still controversial out of a number of labs around the world exploring this idea of permissive dehydration. That you're not deliberately dehydrating yourself like like many of the, the past dehydration studies have done, but you're just not worried about replacing every bit of water that you drink. You you drink when you're when you feel like it. You end up several percent dehydrated, and as a result, even just after uh, a relatively short after a, a week of or five days of this type of training you can see measurable changes in plasma volume. And the more blood, more plasma that's pumping through your veins, this may help you transport oxygen to your muscles. Um, it's certainly very, very controversial. It's definitely something that uh, Olympic athletes around the world are, are trying right now, and I, I know of, uh, of several who are, who are trying it. It's also something you have to be very careful uh, to advocate for the general population. You don't want to send... 15-year-old kids out into the sun saying, I'm going to get dehydrated because it's going to make me faster. That's that's not uh, that's something you want to be very careful with and, and be doing under control. But yeah, there's an idea that dehydration is a training stimulus, and then during the race, it's, it's, a, it's a balance between wanting to maintain fluid, but also being lighter. If you're 10% lighter at the end of a marathon, you're, you're burning less energy to, in order to, to carry your body. So that, that's those are two separate issues, but I think the more interesting one right now is the idea that allowing yourself to get thirsty during training may make, sometimes may make the training harder, but may pay dividends down the road. Um, I'm guessing both Becky and uh, Becca and uh, Larry uh, flinched a little bit at this, although Alex is saying this is something that's being messed around with, with a, a small sliver of a percentage of high-performance athletes. Uh, even so, Larry, does it make you, does it trouble you? There's no evidence that we can adapt to dehydration, but I think there is evidence that plasma volume, the blood volume, will increase. And, you know, that happens with training in a cool environment as well. It happens with heat acclimatization, that is, if we're training in a hot environment. So, yes, the plasma volume can increase, but, again, I would ask, uh, if those people were well hydrated, would they perform better? I believe they would. Secondly, some of the studies that are done in that area are done in a cool environment, and there's a much different uh, physiological stress in the heat where the blood flow is being pushed to the skin away from the central part of the body, and it's not there for cardiac filling and cardiac output to the muscles. Um, Becca Stearns, one thing, I, I don't know how much Corey Stringer Institute gets into this question or, or, or not, but one thing that has occurred to me is, you know, we have been through this sort of big cultural change where, um, like I have a son who basically thinks water is something that comes in a bottle. And uh, that, you know, I mean, earlier in the show, I think it was Alex was saying, look, we have water, we drink water, we can get water. That's sort of true, but we're also living in a culture where somebody walking through Central Park on a really, really hot day uh, might not find a water fountain, might not use a water water fountain, might be, but might not have a dollar in his pocket to buy a bottle of water uh, from a sidewalk vendor. I, I mean, in some ways, it seems like, although we've gotten a lot smarter about hydration, we've also created situations where people think that they don't have access to water because they can't get it in a bottle. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, I carry around a water bottle with me all day, so I, I don't know if I can relate to this issue. <laughs> but um, yeah, certainly... Um, water access would be something of a priority, which would certainly also dictate um, what somebody's able to replace and what measures they should be taking to make sure that they have an optimal measure of hydration. Obviously, 
um, we have two extremes, and um, both extremes are bad, and we need to find that middle ground where um, we have a healthy um, you know, level of hydration that also uh, you know, assists our performance. That's what everybody's interested in. So um, I think it's important to take into consideration water access whenever we're talking about exercise, especially during the heat. And if water access is not freely available, such as when you're in a marathon or maybe you're in a game situation where you can't just stop off at the sidelines, you need to plan ahead and you need to have a plan in place where you can know your sweat needs and your water needs and um, replace accordingly throughout that event. So I think that's really important. And um, to also just kind of chime into the previous conversation, I was, I was thinking along the same lines as uh, Dr. Armstrong over there as well. Um, and I would just want to chime in, you know, um, I know we've heard a lot about how these elites are able to perform in hot weather environments, but I would caution um, any conclusions, um, you know, before being able to systematically actually understand what their potential would be if they were able to even replace half of that fluid that um, we're seeing them lose. I would speculate based on a lot of the other literature that we have is that we could actually improve their performance if we could work with them on a fluid intake plan that would limit some of those losses that they're experiencing. Um, Becca, before uh, you go, one question that uh, came in in the form of a tweet. Uh, somebody tweets, a friend, 25 years old, fit, wandered off the trail in Arizona and died of dehydration. Is that possible without other health problems? Um, well, that's an interesting question, and I wouldn't be able to speak directly to that case. Mm -hmm. But certainly dehydration is a, um, especially once you get past 2% in a hot environment, that's going to place you at risk for other heat illnesses and heat stroke being um, one that is potentially fatal. So, um, yes, I would I would certainly make sure that, um, you know, if you're going out on a hike or somewhere where, again, you're going to have limited water access, that you're bringing those water stores with you and um, you're able to replace as, as you need to. All right. So um, we're going to take a quick break here. Uh, we're going to come back with um, a little bit more conversation about where you can get the hydration that you need. Thanks so much to Alex Hutchinson and to Rebecca Stearns. Uh, we will be back after this. Today, so was produced by uh, No Survivor. Uh, that's better. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kion Wolf. Our interns are Leah Myers and Esther Shitu. Greg Hill appeared on the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Matthew McConaughey. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Here and Now staff eating salt tablets, go to our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, The Nose watches a new comedy program. And now, back to Colin. I feel so bad for the Here and Now staff. So um, uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about the, the nutrition part of this uh, in our here, our, our final segment. Uh, and uh, when I once again thank Betsy Kaplan, the best hydrated producer. She really is the best hydrated producer in public radio, I think. I mean, we watch her water intake every day. It's very impressive. So uh, Lawrence Armstrong is here, professor of exercise and environmental physiology, director of human performance lab at UConn. Rachel Berman is about to join us. She's a registered dietitian and head of content at verywell.com and the author of two books, Boosting Your Metabolism 
for dummies and Mediterranean diet for dummies. Uh, and uh, But we're not doing water for dummies here. We're doing water for smart people right now. And so, um, Larry, this is something we didn't, as you said, uh, reminded me during the break. I'm not sure we really nailed down that question of how do you know that you're getting dehydrated? Uh, how, if it's creeping up on you, how do you check for it? It's amazing that uh, there are over 15 ways that clinicians and scientists assess if we are well hydrated. The, unfortunately, some of these you need neutron particle accelerators. I have one. Yeah, I know you do in your Trevor garage. Is. Yeah, yeah, they're great. <laughs> but we're looking for things that are simple and valid and uh, easy to use. Mm-hmm. And there are three things that I recommend. Number one, Urine color, we've talked about that. Uh, People should try to keep their urine color pale yellow or the color of straw. However, not all the time. If you have that all the time, then you're probably over-drinking. Secondly, thirst. Yes, uh, thirst is not a great index all the time, but if you're thirsty, you're already 1% or 2% dehydrated. Finally, measure your body weight in the morning on several consecutive days, let's say for a week. When you find three values that are similar, that's your baseline body weight. Now, if you find that one day you wake up and your body weight is down a pound, a pint's a pound the world around. And that simply means that if you're down one pound, you're probably down one pint. So those three things. Thirst, you already know that you're 1% to 2% dehydrated. You're in color. Keep it light color. And finally, body weight. If it's typically what it is from day to day, then you're probably going to get a very good state of hydration across the week. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to finish out here with some uh, talk about just sort of how we eat and how we drink, because it's not all about drinking, too. Uh, Rachel Berman is, as I said, registered dietitian and head of content at VeryWell.com. Welcome to the conversation, first of all. Thanks for having me, Colin. And um, maybe the first thing to say is that we've been talking about this in terms of how much water or other liquid you should drink. We don't get all of our liquid that way. How much of our hydration just comes out of food that we eat? Exactly. So, you know, I mean, the old adage of eight glasses of water, I'm sure you've spoken about this ad nauseum on on the show in the past hour, is kind of outdated. Um, You know, we actually get 20% of our fluid needs from the food that we eat every day, Um, and sometimes in some surprising places. Well, yeah. And so mention one or two of the surprising places. Yeah, sure. I mean, so, I, you know, I would think that's something not surprising to start, um, you know, is a fruit like watermelon, mm-hmm. right? Water is in the name. Um, over 90% is actually uh, comprised of water in this fruit. Um, so that's obviously something very fr- refreshing people have on a hot summer's day. Um, but something that might be more surprising is oatmeal or mm-hmm. rice, right? When, we, when you think about it, um, when you cook these grains, you're typically preparing them in an amount of water. Um, So the grain will soak up that water and actually increase the amount of fluid, um, you know, by six or seven fold um, that you would get. So, you know, that's that's something that, you know, maybe you might not be thinking about uh, a water source for you. Yeah. So obviously fruits and vegetables, uh, really good. Those strawberries, lettuce, stuff like that. Uh, Lettuce is like almost all water. Um, You know, exactly. But, you know, one thing I I wondered about, Rachel, as we got ready for this show is like, why are we constantly having these conversations these days? about hydration. And it does strike me that another thing that's going on is people eat a lot more processed foods that have a lot of salt in them. Uh, And that we probably are, uh, because we're on the go, we're in a big hurry, we're gobbling down some kind of processed food bar without really noticing too much what's in it or having a lean cuisine without checking the salt content. I mean, we're doing some things that probably are are making us need more water or at least making us more thirsty. 
Yeah, I think that, and I also don't, I think that we're less mindful. I mean, to your point of being on the go all the time, maybe it's easy to grab something to eat very quickly, but you're not necessarily thinking about carrying a water bottle with you, as you mentioned, Betsy's your, you know, your hydration uh, queen over there. Um, you know, not everyone is so, um, is so meticulous and, and careful about making sure that they're drinking throughout the day because they've got other things on their mind. So I think that that's certainly part of it as well. Yeah, I think also I have to make this one speech here before we end, which is uh, this is just an example. It's happened in lots of other places. But in 2007, the University of Central Florida opened a 44,000 seat football stadium with no drinking fountains, no access to water except water that you could buy, bottled water. Uh, and worse than that, they actually the vendors ran out of bottled water the first game that they had there. But uh. I mean, not everybody's got a dollar in their pocket. People are eating hot, hot dogs, which are salty. People are sitting out in the sun. Um, I mean, there really is a pretty good public health argument for making sure that there are drinking fountains where, you know, if you don't have a dollar in your pocket, you can get some water. It's interesting. And you see in Europe often more frequently those public uh, spaces where you can fill up water bottles. Um, I just see them more frequently when I'm outside of the country for some reason. <laughs> right. And But I, I, I share, I've shared that experience, except that we're yeah. so distrustful of a, of a spigot, a spout in a public square. Can we fill up our water there? What if there's something wrong? The water. We've sort of been right. we, we've been psychologized, I think, to think that the only safe water has Dasani or something on the label. Right, right. All right. Well, listen. Thank you so much for joining us today, uh, and thank you to everybody else who contributed to this show. Especially thanks to Larry Armstrong, who's been our anchor uh, for the show today. Also, uh, thank you, Rachel Berman. Uh, thank you also to Rebecca Stearns from the Corey Stringer Institute, uh, and to Alex Hutchinson from Runner's World. Thanks to Betsy Kaplan. What can I do, doctor? Take the white pill with a glass of water in the morning, and then around noon, take another one with two glasses of water. And again, mid-afternoon with one glass, followed by taking it with three glasses before bed. That's a lot of pills. So what's my diagnosis? You're dehydrated. <laughs>